All right, Ori, Karen. Now, am I pronouncing your last name right? Is it Karen, K-E-R-E-N, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Nailed it. All right. Well, welcome to the Jason Wright Show. So good to have you on all the way from Tel Aviv. We talked offline about how it's kind of amazing. You know, let's look at the let's look at the bright side, which is really easy for me to say here in the comfort of my my home in the United States of America, as you're in in uh, Tel Aviv. But nevertheless, in the middle of all that's going on in the globe, the fact that you and I get to still communicate live these thousands of miles apart. What an amazing thing. And it's just kind of occurring to me now as I say this. I mean, you and I had this conversation about everything that's going on over there right now. And it's and some of what we're dealing with. And it's just the whole globe is kind of uh, coming to grips with what's happening in the Middle East. But what a remarkable time we live in that you can be visiting with me. And so, brother, I'm so glad to have you here today, man. It's great to be here. I share the same uh, sentiment. Well, fantastic. All right. So before you got on, I told you, I want to learn your origin story. I know you come from research and development. I know you come from software engineering. I know you've created a platform that essentially helps with the engineering process. One of the things I'm always curious about for entrepreneurs like yourself, and uh, if I'm not mistaken, Linear B is the first company that you have acted as a founder. I'm always interested in learning kind of that origin story of where you saw the market and then you had the boldness to go out and you not only you see the market, but then determine, okay, I know how to serve this market that may not even realize it exists. And in fact, that's one of the fun things I like about uh, market development is a lot of people don't even see the market that's there and they, until it all of a sudden is created. So let's just start there with your origin story, how you got into software development, and then kind of bring us forward to Linear B and what's happening there. Yeah, thanks. So I usually like to start a story of like, you know, when I was a child, um, I had two hobbies. Uh, maybe they're usually they don't live together, but my per like my parents bought me like a Sinclair Spectrum 48K, which was this old computer, but very cool. Still, I think the best machine ever invented. I played games on it, but I also find out, found out that there's like, you can program things in basic and give it instructions and it does like the thing felt like a magic to me. My, my other hobby, by the way, was basketball. I used to play basketball until like still in high school, et cetera. So, uh, yeah, that's a, a, like a seed that was planted in my head around like, um, I remember, um, I, I told my sister, you, you gotta come here and play this crappy game that I invented. It wasn't any good, but the fact that you create something, you build something with a computer and, and then you, you, other people use it and they get joy of it. It's still up until this moment in time, it's like what drives me. Like now we're doing it at a higher scale, but building product, building things and giving and helping solve problems and seeing people use them. It's still like uh, what drives me, but. Is all, wait a minute, you wait know, I gotta stop the, you there, Ori. I gotta stop you. What was the game? What, how, what was the game? I, what, what were the rules? Kind of tell us about the game. You can't just, you can't I'm just into pass sport, over there, dude. <laughs> I'm, in, I'm into sports. So it, and where I come from in Israel, like uh, soccer is the most popular sport, even though I played basketball. So it was like, you know, you had like a goalkeeper and like balls were thrown and then she had to stop. You gotta catch all of them. Like a very simple game. Yeah. Um, uh, but that was the game. Yeah. It, it didn't how, always it, work. Something. How yeah. long ago was that? 
This was when I was 13, 14. I was, this is 1988, 89. Oh, dude, that's okay. So that's not too long after. It sounds kind of like Pong, except you're, you're, you're trying to, you know, that's one of the very first, you know, Atari games, right? I mean, it's pretty similar and you're not too far behind Atari, right? Yeah, it was, uh, you know, I played Atari, um, and, but this was different. Like the computer was, um, I don't know how to explain it. It's like the fact that even to load games, you had to do, uh, you know, to go through a lot of like challenges, yeah. you had a tape, you got to put a cassette in and to load the games and the fact that you can program it. But yeah, it was very similar to Pong and that was the, the first game that's where like yeah, things started. That's so cool, man. Okay. And I, 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 that just fascinates me because I always like now gaming is such a huge deal, but you're OG. I mean, you're, you're like, you know, you're, you're from the way back. Dude. That's so cool. Okay. All right. There. You satisfied my curiosity. I had to know the game. Continue, please. Um, yeah, so, you know, I went through, um, uh, a different route. It was like part of my childhood and like where I come from, you got to serve, you do mandatory army service. Like I went through that. You go to college or to equivalent to college at the age of 22, 23. My journey was a little bit different. I went to work in a company that maybe the analogy is like the Yahoo of Israel or something like that. And I took like a data entry job. So. I, this is where I started, like, you know, write about websites, et cetera. But the room next to me, I saw the programmers are sitting and starting to build things. And I told them, Hey, what are you building? Show me the books. Show me what, show me what you're building. And there was a book of like basic and say, Hey, I remember this when I was a child, give me something to try. I even still remember what was the first thing that they gave me. And I loaded, like loaded all the way to production. Um, that, that's how I started. And then, you know, once my project was over, they said, Hey, do you want to come here and stay? And, and so I actually started working as a developer, like, uh, I taught myself, like, you know, how to do it. And then, you know, I said to myself, yeah, I got a, I got a good job here, but if I want to do it seriously, I got to go also to, and maybe learn it. And so I went to like college and learn, you know, I, um, side by side by progressing my career, which is uh, different than some of the people do. Uh, um, and I worked in the industry. I was like, uh, I really enjoyed technology. I really enjoyed implementing things. I didn't want to hear about promotions because, you know, I want to just move and write in different technologies and experience everything. These are interesting days, but the languages, like you would still write throughout all the stack, you know, I wrote in C, C++, all of these languages, all the way up to uh, Python these, uh, the last days or the last year, sorry. So, uh, but this, this was cool. I, I came into a crossroad where I, I worked in a company. I wanted to make more impact on the company I worked in. And I understood that the only way to do it is to be a team leader. And from that, it depends how do you look, look at it, but it started like a, uh, slippery slope of. Okay, going up the chain. Okay, now I want to make more impact. So I became a group leader. And then I became like an engineering leader. Um, I was twice um, a VP of engineering in, in companies that grew fast, that had good business success. Um, and it had to, you know, grow the engineering team and, and support that. Uh, both of them were acquired. One, the first one was by AT&T. We built like a... a, a early version of Zoom, like we competed with WebEx those days. 
Um, and the second company was more of a security company uh, named Cloudlock that was acquired by Cisco in, in 2016. Um, so that's like my journey. And when I, after the second acquisition, uh, I stayed, I think like uh, for 18 months or something like that in uh, Cisco. And I told myself, okay, what's next for me in tech? So I had like uh, two choices. One, okay, get out of tech. I really like history, by the way. So I started learning history. Like uh, it was really cool taking some courses, et cetera. But um, the other option was maybe I start my own thing. Like because at, at the last company, I was a technological leader, but it was the first time that I was brought in into like sales conversation. And so I started seeing like the other side, like the go-to-market side and sp spiked like uh, my curiosity around, okay, how do you build like a strong, you know, sales machine, et cetera. Um, so that's the origin story. At that point in time, I told myself, okay, if I'm building my company, I can't build like a restaurant tech companies because I don't know anything about restaurants mm -hmm. or I cannot build like a health tech or insurance tech. I don't know about these spaces. What I know is how to build engineering teams, the challenges that exist there. I've done this for 20 years. Um, and me and my partner, then my co-founder, we started looking at the, at the space and we say, hey, like, yeah, we came into a lot of like staff meetings and board meetings as engineering leaders. We didn't know what to present. There was no standardization on what do you measure? What are the standard KPIs, uh, you know, in, in to, how to measure R&D? Um, it was a good timing because, you know, those platforms where you store the code, where you store the ticket, were kind of like going to the cloud and it became more open. So you can like uh, uh, inspect them and kind of learn things. Um, it's also a good timing because research was starting to be developed or what are the standard KPIs? Like, you know, if, uh, if uh, you know, in sales, you can look at a funnel and you want to look at conversion rates from a lead to opportunity. Same thing exists in R&D, like you just got to standardize that. Um, so, and that's the origin story of, of how we started Linear Beat. It was really clear that we, we uh, know how to solve those problems. We're very passionate about those problems and how you scale an engineering org and how you measure um, if it's trending in the right way. Um, so that's my story. That's how I started Linear B. And maybe, you know, I keep saying there's some entrepreneurs out there that at the age of, I know, 22, 23, they say, I know what I want to do. I'm going to conquer the world. That's not my story. My story, I had to go through the phases and feel comfortable. Yeah, now I know. I feel very passionate about this problem. Uh, the bug of like inventing things always existed in me, but it's the, the, that was the first point that I also want to build a company uh, to solve the problem. I think that's, uh, that's very insightful there. So it sounds to me like, just as a quick recap, that you knew you wanted to be an entrepreneur, you knew you wanted to do something, but you had to go and find a problem to solve that matched with your capabilities. In this case, you're uh, obviously... Uh, a talented software engineer. And so you need to go, and there was a problem. I think that's fascinating too with R&D. I know it, it sounds like, and you helped me on this to, to make sure that I'm tracking. I know one of the hardest courses for me in, uh, in business school was decision modeling, which was essentially trying to make those decisions of do you build versus buy and kind of how you allocate resources based on the, the desired outcome. It was just really, really challenging for me. 
and I think with R and D, that's got to be tough because you, you, it, it, I would think that that it would be hard to determine the metrics of success other than a process of elimination. I guess that in R and D, you're finding out a lot of what doesn't work along the way. And so how, what were some of the things that, that, that struck you that was not being looked at that you were then able to kind of create out, I guess, through, through a, through an algorithm of, okay, this has a success, this is a success. So if this is successful, then move forward to this and tracking, okay, you're pouring all this money into research and development, which some people, you know, I mean, like we've had a lot of industries that have had to pull back on R and D. It's one of the most painful things for things that are especially like medically related if you pull back, but then also it can just be so expensive. And a lot of people, you know, they want to cut their R and D budget first, but it sounds like you kind of help quantify whether, whether or not, even though the final product has not been developed, that the R and D is still moving in the right direction. So what were some of those inputs and ways of looking at it just from a high level before you put it, before, when, like the whiteboard behind you, what would you kind of put on a whiteboard before you put it into code? And what I'm trying to get at here, Ori, is just, I want to understand your thinking because that's one of the things I'm always challenged with is just how, how to be a better thinker, how to be a better decision modeler. What what were the things that you were starting to try to develop as those inputs? And I, I apologize for my rambling, but that's just how my mind works to try to get to kind of how how you thought about solving this problem in the R&D area. Yeah, so it's a great question. I think uh, today... After a couple of seconds, I know how to speak about it because, um, you know, we have uh, a lot of customers and we went through like the messaging and the journey, et cetera. We call it the dual mandate problem and I explain what it is. Uh, originally, we didn't call it like that, but that's how we also like looked at the problem. And what it is, is that uh, engineering leaders, they have to, to almost control two languages. One language is... Um, the operational efficiency of your organization. That's an internal problem. So again, comparing to sales, it's like how, what's the conversion rates are like, um, is that working okay? Or do we have some place where things are stuck? Uh, same goes for R&D, operational efficiency. You can look at what's happening to your code from when it's being committed, written, or even designed until it reaches production. Um, and where do you have bottlenecks in the process and where it's not efficient and then slice and dice it by, you know, teams, by services, by different things. Um, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. There's a lot of like the things in operational efficiency, but that's almost like a looking internally on your organization, finding the problems, problems, helping to solve them, et cetera. Then there's the other thing, other side of the dual mandate, usually when you grow your organization and when you hit like 80 people, 100 people in your R&D organization, they, they, you meet a new persona, the CFO, the VP of finance. Mm -hmm. And as engineering leaders, you got to be able to speak that language. This is the business language. Okay, these are the projects that we're investing. And this is how much we're investing into just keeping the lights on on our existing services. This is how much we're investing, um, you know, in innovation or, or enhancing the existing features. And you got to have this data set as well and control the, the data. And these are our projects. This is how much they're costing us. Here's how much, you know, uh, ROI they're giving us, like how much customers are using them. Um, 
so it's almost like two different uh, set set of problems, and then engineering leader sits in the middle of that, and they need to speak uh, both of the languages. They got in this economy and in this era, they got to be able to talk to the CFO, show the investment, protect the investment that that you should they should protect, and you know the things that are not flowing well or maybe not have like high business impact know how to pause them and stop them. And on the other hand, also keep looking internally to your organization um, and see that things are flowing uh, the right way. So it was always like trying to solve those two problems. We didn't call them like this dual mandate uh, 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 vision, but it it was always like problems from the two ends of of what I just explained. All right, so does Linear B go in and is it essentially helping to kind of translate from the engineer to the CFO that CFO keep funding this project for, re- for, for R&D because, look, we can show you quantifiably that it's making headway. And if it, you're moving a lot, so is, is that what it's doing? Is it, is it essentially making the project, again, if I'm a CFO and I'm looking at R&D, I got to start at some point, see some some light at the end of the tunnel, right? I can't just keep dumping money into something that's never going to come to fruition unless you're Google or somebody like that that just has, you know, an endless well of funds. So is, the, is that what Linear B, is that the problem that you guys are solving? Is it primarily for, I, I got to believe it's for both teams. I mean, it's got, it keeps the, the R&D team, the engineers knowing, hey, yeah, we're moving in the right direction, but also to help that engineer explain to the CFO, this is a worthy this is a worthy endeavor. Let us keep going and we can show is that is that am I kind of tracking on what Linear B solves? Absolutely absolutely. We're a software delivery management platform. That's what we're calling like the space we're operating in. And it's the two do- two domains. On one hand, like let's measure ourselves if we're in engineering org, like how are we doing, where things are stuck in the funnel. There's an existing uh parallel funnel in engineering like the sales funnel. Yep. Um, and we got to look and keep track of it and where do we have bottlenecks and solve them. We're now, by the way, also getting into the workflow and helping solve uh, some of these problems. Um, so that's one side. And the other side is absolutely help the engineering leader um, um, share the same language, share the same data with the CFO and tell, okay, and with the rest of the business, with the VP of sales, with the, with the, with, with the, the peers and the executive table, kind of show, here are the projects that we're working on. This is like how much they're costing and this is the ROI on them. And here's my recommendation on let's, you know, double down on this. Let's stop on it. It's sometimes challenging because, you know, in engineering, there's infrastructure uh, investment and those non-functional investment that doesn't necessarily translate into uh, revenue, uh, but it's the engineering leader role, like to say, hey, this is a don't touch. This is why we're doing it. It will enable us to move in a high velocity. But what I'm seeing is that uh, it's it's an era of uh, of macroeconomics that if the engineering leader doesn't initiate that conversation, um, it will come to him as a, or to them as a surprise. And then it's a battle that is like, it's going to be hard. But if, if they take the initiative and they have the data, they can, um, you know, uh, start with a narrative that they believe in and help like, you know, lead the way like with, with data to the right place that they think they should be leading. Makes perfect sense. Now, let's go back to, now let, let us tell, the, let's tell us an entrepreneur's story. 
All right, so now we kind of got the nuts and bolts. We understand a little bit more about what Linear B is solving for. Now, whenever you were, now remind me, whenever you left to start Linear B, were you employed and then decided, I, I've got an idea? And take us through that. What was that, that point of transition where you and your partner said, okay, we've discovered the problem that we want to solve that matches with our capabilities and our strengths. And how did, and then, and then how did you find that first client? Did the first client exist? And, and they said, hey, if you guys build this company, then yeah, we, we will sign on. If you, if you can deliver, Ori, what you say, we will be your first client. Like, take us through and how, how, you, and how you process that. What were some of the goals you set? Some of the, just the mindset that you had to get to know that, that you were, it was worth, worthwhile taking this huge leap that every entrepreneur or every founder in particular at some point has to take. Yeah. So we started, I think that we had like, um, uh, both of us, both me and then my partner, um, then is us based. I'm based in uh, Israel and Tel Aviv, like I, like I said, um, this is also interesting, by the way, we were good friends, very good friends with a lot of respect. And we started a company like miles away and started iterating. And then of course, uh, uh, traveled and, and met each other and iterated. But here's what we did. We said, okay, we went into like uh, three or four months of like, uh, thinking, building things, trying stuff, uh, before uh, starting the company and we had uh, the opportunity to do that. We, we both went after like a new, an acquisition. So we had a little bit of like, we weren't like, uh, you know, very, very rich, but it gave us like a, a window of time, like to start to say, okay, we can, we can now sit and think and like start building things. Uh, what we did basically is that we built the first version. Um, I coded the first version, then went and looked for design partners. I also looked for some design partners, but he mainly he. Him and um, what we told the design partner is: Listen, you're gonna give us access to your to your systems where we we're gonna give. We didn't even build a product, but we're gonna give you um, a first version, a PDF that was like kind of like um, already containing some of the insights that we found in in your process. And all we need, all we're asking back is give us, you know, back say, hey, this is valuable, this is interesting. Yeah, I would, I would do something with a product like that. Um, and we had like 10 or 15 design partners um, that really quickly, we understood that there's something there because all of them say, this is interesting, I want more. Um, I'd say like almost all of them became our, our early customers. I think just maybe two or three didn't, but all, all of them were our first customers. Um, so this, this is how we started. And, and you know, I don't think, and that's a really important, uh, point because you asked me like we even th that concept or the problem that we're solving we're solving problems in that area so the sure. first version wasn't exactly you know as i uh, described it today which i think every entrepreneur needs to understand like you iterate on the problem and, and on the pain points and you get then that's that's another thing that we learned really fast and and we we got to it but um, this is how we started we had like 10 or 15 design partners that say that, that, that it's interesting. We went and like uh, raised like a press seed round just to, to you know, to be able to uh, 
get some employees and build this into a product. That's how we started our journey, basically. All right. Now let's talk about that a little bit because that's one of the things that's always, when I'm talking to entrepreneurs and they come to me and they say, all right, I want to go raise some capital. I've got an idea. I want to put, you know, I want to actually put this thing into action. Where do I go? Do I borrow? Do I get investors? Do I go VC? Depending obviously on the size of the, the, the business they're trying to either acquire or to start. What was that process for you guys? You, it sounds to me like you had a little bit of cushion and you weren't going to just sit around and go, ah, eh, well, we got some money. Let's go sit on the, the beat, the beach for a little while. No, you guys were ready to get to get to work and, and do something with it. How did you raise the capital? Where did, how did you make that list of initial investors and people that you would go to start to build the company? What was that process like? Yeah. So the, that process was, um, for us specifically, you know, after the acquisition, uh, in Cisco, we had some, uh, like initial connection, you know, with some, with the, some of the folks, um, in Corp Dev, et cetera, asked for their advice, et cetera. Then basically we got a list, uh, we built a list of people that we can approach. Uh, what, uh, we did, which if it's very specific and very individual, like to entrepreneurs and their state and how much, you know, uh, um, runway they have before they want to raise because it's hard. Sometimes you, you have families, et cetera. You got to think about all the aspects, but I think it was great for us because what we did is say, is we went to these people and say, Hey, we're meeting you, but we don't, we're not raising money. We want to show you where we are right now and where we're going to be in three or six months. And let's see if we're on the same page, if their relationship, relationship is good. And, but if we hit the goals that we said we hit is uh, that we're going to hit, is this interesting to you? And the people that reacted good to that message, we started a conversation with them and then, yeah, we hit the milestones. We got our customers and then I think. Uh, it was an easier uh, um, conversation or easier journey to raise the first uh, capital because when you come and you say, "Hey, I need the I need the capital," it's like everybody comes to these people and say, "Hey, I need." When you come and say, "Hey, I don't want your money, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to show you where I'm going to be and what I'm going to be there." Is it interesting for you? They, it's already like a different angle, like to speak to some of the folks who are in the, uh, you know, who are angel investors, etc. Oh, this is refreshing. These, in, in these two people, they don't want money right away. They want to show me what they're going to do. So that's like, if you can do it, that's my advice. Like act this way. It's like a much more efficient. I think that's absolutely brilliant. And first of all, it also, it's typical. I mean, it's, it's kind of funny being a software engineer, you, you use the, if this, then scenario, I mean, even, even if doing a pitch, I think it's, it's, it's brilliant. And I think you're very wise in that because how many times do we hear people say, you know, ideas are worth nothing. Ideas, I mean, they're just not worth anything. But going to potential investors and saying, if we execute on this, then this is what this is going to mean. And, and also, it's kind of interesting just thinking about this out loud. It's it's very much what your product ended up doing. It's like, hey, look, we research and development is is trying to figure out things that work. And our software is going to help to be able to answer this question of, you said you were going to do this and is it, is it actually do, moving toward what you had hoped that it would? And I think that is excellent advice for any entrepreneur is to, and there's two things you said that I think make a lot of sense. I think people take for granted. So we hear this thing that is, is, you know, it's an old trope 
your network is your net worth. And a lot of people tend to think of networking as simply schmoozing, going out, making contacts, showing up to cocktail parties and after hour events. Sounds to me like what you guys did, you worked hard in your chosen field as, as, in, as, as software engineers. And then the people that you had worked around and had seen you in action, that it wasn't necessarily hardcore, hey, I want to get to know you in case I need something from you one day. But you had an audience of fellow professionals that knew what your capabilities were, that you had nurtured, and then you reached back. So if you're talking and guiding an, a, a new entrepreneur that wants to start a business, kind of, it sounds to me like you would say, one, don't go immediately ask for money. Instead, show what you're up to and what your goals are, and then be able to come back after you've achieved those goals and say, hey, we executed, and then have the people that you have not that you did it to impress them, but they have at least seen you in action. They know your capabilities even prior to that. So, I mean, is that kind of the strategy that you guys follow whenever you were getting this thing kicked off? Yeah, like uh, I, I think you're, you're absolutely right. Some, some of the people we knew throughout the journey um, of our like uh, earlier career, uh, some, even if we met them, uh, we're not, great at networking by the way like we keep joking me and my partner and then like we're your software uh, engineers we like man. To, <laughs> we're software engineers exactly we like <laughs> to build things etc right but um but then yeah like uh even even if we met people for the first time you already come with a track record and they can ask okay oh uh, they can find out and like run a back channel and um it's uh, I, again i keep saying everybody has their own journey my journey is not the only journey. It's just my journey. Every, other people have other, but in my journey, that was what's helping me. Like this track record of like being a hard worker, um, you know, throughout my career and some success, um, you know, with, with the companies I worked in and then just proving it again to these people. That's what worked for me. So how old is Linear B at this point? How old are you guys? We are uh, in our fifth year. Fifth year. Okay. So you're into it. So that, that's good. You've got overcome that. And so, and how many employees do you have now? We're over 100 employees. Yeah. That's, that's literally 50-50 awesome. when I say 50 in Israel, 50 in the US. Wow. That's crazy. Okay. So, and here's the reason why I asked this. Scaling is always so hard. Not just, not, and I'm not talking about when people hear scale, they like to think about scaling the business, more customers, more money, more whatever. But to me, one of the hardest things I always faced, Ori, as a entrepreneur was knowing when to hire, when to scale the, in, the, the, the human capital within the organization. And so for that individual now that might be a little bit behind you, they survived that first year, that first 24 months, they've, they've made it through COVID or whatever. And now they're, they're kind of growing and they're, they're strained in there, but they're so scared. And I, I would like your take. And now is not just the software engineer, but you're a founder now. So you're having to run a business and think about these capital expenditures, these human capital expenses and all these other things. What is the process that you and your partner have gone through to kind of quantify when you need to hire, when you need to add, add headcount? Because to me, this is just me talking. I don't know what anybody else thinks, but I know as a business leader, it's always one of the hardest things I ever go through is when to add 
uh, add humans to the to the enterprise because you're adding personalities, you're adding psychology, you're adding expense. You you might be adding talent that can help you grow, but there's just so much that goes into it. So as you went, you guys went from that that two to now over a hundred. How how did you think through that process? And was it scary? And or did you like no no? We know this is the perfect perfect person for this job. I mean, kind of what were some of the challenges with that? Uh, um, yeah, it's a great question. So I think again, what helped is like a background. I, I was a VP of R and scaled organizations before um, up to yeah up to this size, more or less like one hundred. So. Um, it helped, but I think what's unique here, we had to learn, you know, both of us came from R&D, we had, we had to learn go-to-market. Um, and it's exciting still, very, very exciting, by the way, I still, I love my role because of that, how uh, we can talk about that. But um, I think it's uh, in this time, in this economy, what people, my advice for people is to think about um, okay, what do I need to do to, to get to the next round or to the next? And kind of like think, okay, what? So understand your runway, understand your budget, understand how much you can hire within that. Um, and just have your priorities right. So if you know that for the next milestone, you got to build a strong product and you know that, I don't know, your seed going into A. So you want like, I don't know, three or five customers. That's what you want. That's what you think will help you like um, to raise the next round. Um, and you need strong R&D. Understand the, the characteristics of your organization to get you to that level. Plan in advance. And you'll feel pain everywhere. You'll say, oh, well, maybe I get a marketing, maybe I, but just stay focused on what you said is your is your utmost because you'll feel the pain in, not, in a lot of places. So that's... Uh, one thing that I think is, I, I hope is helpful. The other thing is like, I keep saying it's like uh, a startup is like, um, the, the level goes up all the time, all the time, all the time. It's like, so, so it's um, some of the people that were great leaders in your organization at some phase just can't be the, the best leaders in your organization that like in a year or two years when you start, when you scale. So I would just be open with people, ask them where they want to be and just be um, very transparent with them when, they're, when you're not seeing the results you need to see. But meaning like, hey, you could be an amazing individual contributor. I'm just speaking on, on, on marketing for a second. I know that you think that you can scale and be like the marketing leader, but in this, maybe, maybe it's right in other organizations. Here I, I'm not seeing it. I still think you can be great. That's just set expectations, right? If we're not, it's fine. You could probably be amazing as a marketing leader in our organization. It's not working here. Uh, identify it fast and just act on it because then you're fair with the person you're talking to. You're fair with your company, with the other, you know, 20 people that, that are looking at you like to carry this organization into success. Um, uh, and there's no, I don't know, there's no one good advice how to identify it. Sometimes like people, oh, maybe I moved too fast and this person could have been an amazing leader. Usually it's the other way around. Like it's the other way around. Like you gotta, um, if you have, if you're not seeing like the growth that you need to see, it's probably the signs that 
you don't have the leader who can take you to the next level. We were very fortunate, by the way, in a lot of the functions to have people, not a lot, but in some of the functions to have people who went all the way with us and scale all the way, like, you know, uh, uh, to be VPs in, in the company right now, but it's not always the case. You said something there that I have tried to really drill into every entrepreneur that I've worked with as an executive coach or just trying to help them get started up is the clear expectations of both parties is as the, as the leader making sure and getting confirmation. Do you understand what I'm expecting of you? And by the same token, make sure I understand what it is you want from this, this role and where you're, where you see yourself headed. Let's collectively set some, some metrics and some milestones that we can, we can objectively look in and determine. And that way, whenever you have the conversation of you're not meeting expectations that I have for you as your leader, then you, it's not as big of a surprise and, and joining into that. I think it's something that a lot of, a lot of leaders, they, they just, they miss that. And, and, and also I think it saves the company a lot of money because what they figure is a lot of people try to just throw out that, that carrot of financial reward to someone and think, oh, if you hit this milestone, we'll give you more money. When in real, reality, all they want to know is that they're meeting their, their senior leaders expectations and vice versa. And they're finding purpose and their, their talents, their autonomy and their independence. They're all being leveraged to move toward a goal that they both see as valuable to the organization. If you can get those questions answered, man, it sure does seem to to make for a, for a better situation. One of the things you mentioned, and I saw you kind of light up, and I want to talk about this because it is one of the 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 things that few people understand. You got to make a sell. You got to go to market. You got to go tell your story about why you're good and why you're doing. And I saw you light up there. So tell me what is exciting about that that go to market especially again not to beat up on you but for for an engineer who gets to actually go out and, and say hey look at this music i've written i want to sell some songs essentially you know so so kind of talk about that and and what the process has been for you yeah i think it's it started even before studying this company again um uh, as an engineering leader i was brought into um you know what i even take it like a step back I was a developer and then I became a manager. And then you learn, I keep using this term, it's, it's uh, the people are not deterministic. Like a function, you give it the same parameter or it's two parameters, it will output the same, the same up. People are different. Pe people, some people, what incentivize them or is, uh, you know, usually what incentivizes is like a purpose and the career growth. Some people, it's more about like, you know, in some phases of their life, about money. and about... So people are different. And I think that uh, challenge, uh, I really liked it. Uh, it. And you can reflect to it in, in like closing a deal. And early on, I was brought as an engineering leader, which is like the best because it's like on other people, like to win the deal, you just come as like the technology person. And, and when you help and the deal happens, um, it's, it's, uh, you get a lot of joy from it. Uh, but then you learn there's like, um, a lot of like other obstacles in the way. Sometimes like you got the technical win, but somebody, you know, the champion changed in the last minute. So, um, I think that's where like my passion started like to, okay. Yeah. Um, you know, I like building products, but in order for, for me to build products that solve problems and put them in the hands of customers. I also got to have uh, go to market, get success and prove that I can 
dem like the somebody somebody can demo the product people can uh, envision how it helps them solve a problem and then navigate through all the things that to help to, to help close the deal so that uh thing to do it like once and then scale it from the first couple of deals that me and my founder like closed to bring in the first rep that can close it to scaling the uh, sales organization to now okay marketing and how do you get enough demand to what I call product market fit flow state. I like everybody talk about product market fit, but flow state to me is like you message and market and then sell and then roll out the same thing. Which sometimes in organizations, like people, you know, message one thing, but the reps will say, hey, yeah, sell one specific use case that's not exactly. And then when you roll out, people are trying to roll out the, the playbook and people say, no, but I bought it for this. So just getting into the, that flow state, that's like, I think I still view, we've, we still view it, me and my partner as a machine. That's like, because we're engineers. So how do we engineer scale, et cetera. And now, and every time it's like every new phase, something uh, new excites us in like, uh, in the, in the journey of like cracking, like uh, go to market and, uh, and also like, it still all relates to product because if you have a strong product, it's, it's not always, it's not, uh, enough. But it's a foundational like uh, condition like to success. It's not enough. So I've seen like amazing companies with amazing product. You know how to go to market, but it helps if you have a strong. It's a good start if you have a strong product. Yeah, well, that's one of the things you know that Elon Musk is constantly talking about is he's so product focused and but also I would say he's pretty good at promotion, go to market, telling the story, and that's you know it's it's the whole package. All right, so one of the things that I'm really fascinated by. In your cases, uh, it, it's very close to home with me. Whenever I was in business school, there were a lot of engineers in my uh, my MBA cohort that were essentially trying to get to where you are. They had this engineering background, whether it was for uh, where they were writing code or whatever the case may be. And that's how I'm kind of using software uh, engineer at this point is more of a electrical engineering and uh, and writing uh, software engineering. And they wanted to get into more of the business aspects of it, to understand more of the, 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 the bigger picture to where you are now as an executive. What are some of the things that you have learned along the way that, in making that transition? Of course, I know you were already managing people whenever in your, in your previous life before the acquisition and before you founded your own company. But now that you are as, the, as, the, as a founder, what are some of the things that you're doing to hone your skills as a leader? As a as a as a business executive that does have to, you know, understand the PL at a higher degree. And maybe I don't know what your investment makeup is, but to have to go back to those investors to con constantly tell them the story about processes and progress and where you guys are going. What are some of the things that you're doing to make yourself a better leader and executive now that you've made this transition into founder? I think uh, uh two key things is uh that again we're right even when you're an engineering leader so first be I'm always curious like learning more things understanding SAS kpis to the last bit of them um and then i would say always hire people that are better than you at least at one or two things mm. genius if you're bringing if i'm bringing leader that just to feel comfortable that i'm smarter than them, like I'm, I'm lost, but I always saying like, I want to hire leaders that are better than me, at least at 
one, hopefully two things that I can, and then you learn from them a lot of things. Then the same goes to, um, you know, early on, you meet a lot of people who want to be advisors. Um, and, and you go through, you understand what it's the meaning of a board member. It's almost like it's a long relationship, like that you got to manage. And, and so uh, I keep saying, you know, I was lucky. I think it's luck, but also intuition of who will, who will connect, like, and we can build a relationship and sometimes we'll think different. And how do you handle those, uh, you know, different of opinions. So what I learned is in the board and in the couple of people I advise, I, I take advice from is I think, um, my tip is surround yourself with enough people and learn when to listen to each one of those. At the end of the day, you, you're making the decisions, you're making the decisions. And if you ask for two opinions, you're going to have all of them. Mm -hmm. People will go say, hey, don't go PLG to, Hey, you gotta go PLG. Like, you hear like the, the contrast there. So, you know, just picking and understanding when to listen to who I'll, I'll give you, uh, I, I, I keep using this analogy, like, uh, from the movie, the Godfather, um, where, um, I think it's Alpha, like Mike is telling, uh, Tom Hagen, it's like, Hey, you're not a wartime conciliary. You're done great things for the family, but we're at war now. Now I need a wartime conciliary. So. I, I like this analogy because there's time that you need the person on the board or the advisor that seeing, seeing things in a very, you know, high contrast and very opinionated, this is what you should be doing. There's times that you need to talk to the person who is a sounding board. You kind of know the answers, but it's sort of like a therapist, like you talk to them and you kind of understand on your own. There's time that you got to go to the person who's like, excellent at, at like the SaaS KPIs and the, you know, it's just like, again, I didn't go through business school. I, 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 I think, um, I just learned, learned those things like, uh, while running the company and building and building the company. Um, so I, I think my advice is like, yeah, have your own beliefs at the end of the day, it's you making the decisions and then surround yourself by people that you feel confident enough to consult with them in the right timings, by the way. At the end of the day, it's your decision, but it's helpful. Well, it's, it's funny you said this because I literally just released an episode of my podcast today where I talk about that very thing, about having your own personal board of directors. And also, have you happened to pick up this book yet? It's, uh, it's new. It's by Shane Parrish, Clear Thinking. There it is right there. It, he no, uses he uses the exact uh, analogy that you did from the Godfather talking about Tom Hagen and the wartime conciliator. Yeah. It, absolutely. He, he like, and of course I'm a, I'm a diehard, uh, Godfather fan as well. There's so, there's so many lessons to be gleaned on leadership and everything in that movie. And that's one of the things he actually talks about. He said, there are times when you need that wartime conciliary. There's other times you need the peacetime conciliary, but you've got to, you got to know when and who those people are. And so in along those lines, do you have, you know, they, the, I guess the old adage is we are the average of the five people we spend the most time with. And that's one of the things I've been really honing in a lot on is just trying to help people. Cause I've been very, very fortunate that, um, I've had incredibly bright and accomplished people that have come into my life that I've been able to learn so much from. And, and I'm just like you, man, I, 
I always want to hire people that are smarter than me. And I want to be around people that I believe are smarter than me, which isn't all that challenging all the time. But I look at it as, you know, um, playing tennis against someone who's better than you. That's the only way you're going to improve. If you play against somebody that's going to dominate all the time, you're never going to get any better. Are there some things that you do to make sure that you're spending time with right people like in just and going in people that may have nothing to do? And this can be a virtual mentor. That's one of the things I've talked a lot about, the, the value of looking at people that you may never interact with on a daily basis, but you look to them and how they made decisions. You can read a biography or you can watch them and work. Do you kind of think about those things and bring those type of people into your life? And if you do, if you you know, do you have any that you could say, hey, I've looked at this individual as I've started building my company and gone, there's something there that I've researched and I want to try to learn from. Do you have any folks like that in your life? Yeah, so there's like, uh, you know, folks you met in person. Um, um, usually to me, that's like where the connection is stronger than like reading about. But reading about people is also uh, inspiring and, you know, um, I like the stories. There's some cool stories about like it's uh, industry leaders here in Israel, even like all the industry. I like those stories that there's about people who are like, um, you know, there was one person who built like a, a like big factory here. He was even a minister at one time in Israel. And uh, they asked him, and he, he, he was an um, electrical engineer or machine engineer, and they asked him, uh, what's what's inspiring or what's going to be written on your tombstone and he was saying engineer like i want i want the title engineer on my so those kind of stories or people like um you know the values that we uh me and my partner like we really like uh promote um you know this leader who, who brought i think intel into like israel and like and he sat in a cubicle like everybody else like, what do you mean? Like, I get, I'm getting a room and everybody else is like, no, I'm sitting with everybody. Yeah, when I need to speak, I'm going to go to my room. I, I don't have a room until now. It's like still like, so I think it's snippets of stories of leadership uh, that I that I like, that I, I pick on virtual, virtually, like face-to-face -face is like what, um, you know, um, I'm taking more like uh, from like, again, bored and people who are, uh, entrepreneurs before and, and their challenges. Um, yeah, those are like the, those like, I have like, I keep saying I have like, um, two, uh, I had two grandfathers, both of them passed by now. One I didn't meet when he was, when I was one year, I met, but when I was one year, or year old, like he passed away. So, and he was an entrepreneur, like, but he was like, building roads and paving. It was a contractor, et cetera. And I keep reading about how his life and all the ups and downs. He was like very rich at one point and bankrupted like three times. And um, so there's some of this like uh, excitement that I take from him. The other grandfather lived a more peaceful life. And um, so those are also the people that inspire me, like uh, my roots, like where I came from. So what do you do to take care of yourself? I mean, as an entrepreneur, that's one of the things that has been kind of interesting to me. Like one of, in Austin, Texas, there's a place called the uh, Athlete Generator Lab that um, that my uh, friend, uh, Dr. Jess Tankina, she and her husband, Delphin, opened. And she was surprised. She thought that it would be mostly a lot of 
former professional athletes or or whatever, just hard charging athletes that would be her members. But what she's found is that it's a lot of entrepreneurs, but a lot of people just like you. So are you focused on, and, I, and it's just kind of one of the things I geek out on is health and wellness. As a matter of fact, I'll be recording my uh, weekly episode of Authentic Health Fridays uh, here later this afternoon with my buddy, Dr. Gus Vickery. That's just kind of my, the closest thing I have to a, to a hobby or essentially is my health. Are there things that you're doing to maintain good mindfulness, health, wellness, to keep the, the, the primary business tool any of us have, which is our being? Are there some things there that you're, you're focused on? Yeah, here, by the way, I've got to give a lot of credit to Dan, my partner, because the, when we started within the company, we, didn't, we said instead of having the same four values that every company have, we're employee first, customer obsession, all these like cliches that we decided to adopt behaviors. I won't go over all of them, but one of the categories of behaviors is work-life balance. And then there's foundational behavior and exceptional. In the foundational, it's like, okay, you do something to take care of yourself. In the exceptional, you share with the other employees, okay, this is my program. This is what I'm, I'm doing and this is how it helps me. And it's really helpful because for me, I picked, I never, I never thought I was going to do yoga. I picked yoga from my partner then, but I'm also an athlete. So I run, it's, it's changing, but I either swim, you know, a lot or run, run a lot. Now I'm back to running. Uh, I think there's something that's happening once you're in your, I don't know, your exercise, you, you got to go into like the 40, 45 minutes of running or swimming that you get into this meditation area where your mind is stop, stop thinking and there's not enough oxygen to think about work problems and you just, mm -hmm. just empties it just like focus on your breathing and all the, really, really helpful. Like, um, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm making sure I'm doing this like at least like twice a week. That's and I things, learned it from my partner, so all the credit for him. That's one of the things that I just, as a matter of fact, you mentioned uh, yoga. I have just now gotten back to doing yoga. It, it is such a, it's not because I didn't like it or I just stopped. I mean, I do a, a ton of things, but one of the things that I had neglected was was yoga. And it's just, it is so good for mindfulness, for balance work. It, it's just, there's so many benefits to it. So, and I like that idea too of sharing because man, one of the things that I, doing this podcast and talking to the cool people I get to talk to. And again, just being somebody who geeks out on health and wellness, I'm really blown away at um, how little is known by other people that don't find this stuff as interesting. And so it's really cool that you, that you have this, this kind of this behavior that you guys are instilling of, Hey, if you, if you got something that works for you, that, that you're benefiting from, share it with someone, don't just keep it to yourself. And so I find that, that, that very cool. Now, one thing before I let you go, because you're in the tech space, uh, there's two things. One, I want you to just kind of give this audience, because look, I'm stateside. Um, my wife and I, we, uh, she wants, she is dying to go to Israel. Obviously that's not going to happen anytime soon. Uh, but it, she's, that's, that's one of, that's one of our bucket list trips. I have a lot of friends that, that have been to Israel, but I don't think people, uh, other than the religious aspects of of Israel, they don't understand what a tech hub, uh, Tel Aviv in particular, where you are, is. So what is it like? Just kind of give a description of the day-to-day -day life in Tel Aviv and the the entrepreneur uh, space, the tech space, you know, to, to get for, for, uh, for someone that's here, just a, the typical American, what is that atmosphere like? And you've been both stateside. So how does it compare with like Silicon Valley and different er different business hubs 
of the States? Yeah, Tel Aviv is the best because it's a great tech hub. A lot of companies, a lot of like energy, a lot of meetups. If you're into like, you know, software and development, you'll find a lot of meetups. If you're into like the business, there's really like uh, tons of like uh, a lot of companies and a lot of great, great energy. Uh, people are always shocked the first time they're coming in, like, because they, they have this perception of what they think about Israel and Tel Aviv. So the other thing is that Tel Aviv is, uh, a very li a live city, vibrant with a lot of like nightlife and restaurant, great restaurants and in peaceful times of <laughs> when we're not in the situation like we are now. And so it's a great combination because uh, like, I don't know if you compare it to uh, some of the places I've been that are excite, exciting in, in the States in terms of like the, the people that you can learn from, but then some of these cities are kind of like more, um, uh, you know, calm at night and less of like this nightlife. Well, Tel Aviv is like a, a great, and, and some places in the States are amazing in nightlife, you know, you, Tel Aviv is like, it's small, it's not that big. And you get both of these things and it's, it's a charm that you just gotta be here like to feel it. So I hope, I hope it provides a description. Yeah, no, that's good. One of my, uh, closest friends, guy named Kenneth DePue, he and I worked on the Senate staff together here, here in, in the States. And, uh, and he got his master's at the uh, university of Tel Aviv, I guess is what it is. Or is it Tel Aviv university? However, if I'm saying that wrong. Yeah. Um, he got his master's degree there and he just, uh, he loves Israel. And in fact, at one time. Obviously, he lived there when he was going to graduate school, and he had considered making uh, that he wanted to try to, you know, be there far more. And he he's given me similar descriptions. He's like, you you want to you just you, you can't imagine how how fun it is and cool and just the it's it's a it's a really cool place. But I really can't get my brain around it, so I'm hoping that I'll be able to get there someday. And then the second thing I wanted to add before I let you go, being in the tech space and being a a uh, a prominent thinker in technology. I got to ask you, what are your thoughts on where AI is taking us? Have you started to leverage it for what you guys are doing? And, uh, and just kind of give just like from someone who obviously is going to know the, the more intricate features of AI and its potential than someone like me, what are your thoughts? Yes. So, um, I'm looking at, we're looking at AI from two angles. We're, uh, doing internal things to adopt it. So. Yeah, one example that I can say is like, uh, there's a Slack channel where the sales reps ask questions, right? Uh, and usually they wait for a product person to answer them. So we built internal things that we kind of like parse our, like learn the model, like from our documents and it just answers them. Uh, so all of a sudden 80% of the answers they get automatic, uh, instead of like waiting for, uh, the product. So we do a lot of these internal, not a lot, but uh, two or three initiatives of these internal things out, out to uh, capitalize on Gen AI internally. Uh, what I think Gen AI will do to software is exciting because I think there's a true potential of like, um, of getting a great productivity gains. By the way, I don't think like, uh, machines will replace developers, but the role of the developers will be different. Okay. A lot of the, like initial code could be like generated. And now uh, developers will need to read the code, inspect it, and kind of alter it uh, where, they, uh, where they need. And by the way, developer, as developers, we like to write code. There's not a lot of developers who like to read code. 
Right. I keep saying, hey, we got to learn to read code again. And, uh, and what I think is going to happen is now the bottleneck will go to what, we, what I call the development pipeline. It's like, again, what, what Linear B does is like looking at what happened when code is being generated and until it's in production, you got to approve the change. So a human need to read the code and approve it. Then the CI workload runs, then the CD, then. Um, so in order to uh, unleash the poten that potential, I think uh, uh, the software the uh, software industry will still need to like fix other things to to enjoy this like 10x promise. So that that's where at least where my thoughts are. Yeah, that's that's exciting, and that, that's one of the things that I see. It's like you know, it's not this. I've said this before. It's not this, you know, uh, humans or AI. It's you know, humans plus AI make for a better outcome. And I think one of the cool things too, and, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but like, and I, and you kind of said it, being able to having to recode. And the thing that I think is missing and John Ricketts, who's the CEO of Riderly was, was on the podcast and it, which is a, a generative AI company. And we talked about the, the big, the most important thing is being able to ask the right questions. And so I guess, you know, and, and that's, and, that's where I think the it, the true human element comes in is to be able to now AI can start to question itself, but it's more uh it's generative. It takes all the questions that have been asked, just spits out answers. It's I think it's really gonna be a time where we we harken back to which, you know, I guess it was Voltaire that said, judge a man by his questions, not his answers. It's kind of coming into he's like, Hey, he said that way back and now it really it's really making some sense, right? So we gotta be able to ask those good questions. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Ask the right questions. Alter, you know, some of the answers. Uh, apply the, inter the human intervention uh, intervention in the in the right places, so you can capitalize on that. Wonderful. Ori, this has been fun, man. I think that we've given the listener a good insight into your company. Whether they whether they're <laughs> gonna need to, you know, uh, whether, whether it's linear B, which that was not really my my goal, was to give them all the ins and outs necessarily of what you guys are doing. I'm sure you you talk about that enough in your industry space, but I really wanted to visit with you as an entrepreneur, man. It's built something that you're a founder, and I I, I think you just dropped some incredible wisdom uh, here for the audience today. Is there any anything else that you that, that we haven't covered that we need to cover before I let you go? I want to make sure your time is most well spent here. No, I really appreciate the time and uh, the conversation and, you know, feeling off your ideas and questions and uh, really enjoy the time here. Well, good. All right. Well, thanks so much for joining us. And uh, folks, it is Linear B, Ori Karen. And where can people follow the company and you and, uh, and so they can celebrate your success? Where's the best place to keep in touch? The, the company and they can go to LinearB.io. You have a free version. They can try it there. I'm on LinkedIn. You can find me really easily. I'm on Twitter as well. LinkedIn is more strong. Uh, like I spend more time there, but uh, uh, those are the places. All right. Ori, thanks so much for joining us, folks. He's Ori. I'm Jason, and we are out. Well, that does it for this episode of The Jason Wright Show. Thank you so much for listening. This has been a Texas Titan Media production. Fourth Wall did the music. And as always, Thank you so much for listening. Please consider going out to jasonrightnow.com and signing up for the Vitruvian Letter. Also, please go out to iTunes. It takes like 30 seconds to just leave us a five-star rating. It does wonders for the podcast. I would be so grateful. And with that, until we meet again, 
go crush it and endeavor to improve always in all ways. I'm out. Thank you.